0: Welcome to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch, and your host. Today we welcome Robin Gorman Newman. Robin is the founder of RGN Marketing, where she is a specialist in marketing communications and public relations. She has also authored two books and is a Tony Award-nominated producer. She is the founder of Motherhood Later Than Sooner, a worldwide organization whose mission is to support, connect, and empower later-in-life mothers and fathers, and she's also the founder of LoveCoach.com, which we'll discuss. We'll discuss how adopting a child later in life impacted her life and career path and how her interest in theater evolved into her work as a Broadway producer. We're also going to get her views on what the theater world will look like post-pandemic. Robin, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Good to be here. Thank you so much for hosting me. Well, you have such an unusual and varied career path, and I'm really interested in hearing how all of that happened and came together. But let's first start uh, a little earlier on. You had a long career in PR and then wrote a book called How to Meet a Mensch in New York and a second book, How to Marry a Mensch. And I want to start when you and your husband adopted your son when you were 42 years old. Did you take a career break then?
1: Um, no, I did not. It would. I would just say that it was a shift. Prior to that, I was working for a PR firm. I was a VP there for a number of years, and then when the first book came out, had a meet and mention New York. Surprising to me, um, I wound up on TV all over the world. I was on a Today Show, CNN, London media embraced it. Wow. Honestly, Carol. Yeah, I did not see that coming at all. And I started doing speaking gigs, and then I eventually launched a business as a love coach. And that led to my second book, the How to Marry a Mensch title, because it seemed sort of crazy to be getting all this media and have a book that was for the tri-state, which was the initial book. It was kind of like a Zagat's Guide So, so, you know, from all of that and from my love coaching work and having the background in PR, when my husband and I were working toward parenthood and eventually that happened, as you said, at age 42, I had made the choice to work for myself and to work from home. And that allowed me a lot of flexibility with the various projects and hats that I was wearing. And that ultimately led to some of the other things that we're going to talk about.
0: Right. And and I do want to talk about that now, because the the other thing uh, that's the other theme is that you got into theater and then later got into the producing side of theater. And I wanted to know if you can tell us how that
1: happened. Sure. First of all, I'm a lifelong theater lover. I grew up with it and my mom loved it. And it wasn't something that I necessarily thought would be a career. But when I went to undergraduate school at Hofstra University, I was actually the arts editor of a school newspaper. And I did feel like at that time that I wanted to be a theater critic. And I was doing a lot of writing for the newspaper and also other outlets. But then when Frank Rich got hired by the New York Times and he was the lead critic then, I felt like he took my job. (laughs) <laughs> so I was kind of dismayed which was, you know, a little funny because I certainly could have pursued other jobs but that was my mindset at that time. So I went on from there and just worked in other industries and then eventually circled back to theater because actually through my motherhood work because when I launched motherhoodlater.com for a while there there was a trend in theater where a lot of mom shows were happening. And around that, a lot of the theatrical marketing and PR and social media firms were then targeting that audience, not just moms, but women over 40, because that's the sweet spot for ticket buyers. And that's largely my audience of women who became a mom, you know, for the first time or again, over 35, but it's really more over 40. Mm -hmm. So I started working with a lot of the marketing firms on a promotional level to help various shows on and off Broadway to reach my audience and beyond. And from that, a show came on my radar, which was in California, and it was called In Mother Words. And it was one of those universe moments, Carol, where, and this is a lesson I'd love to share with your listeners, is that if your gut tells you to do something, just do it. Because mm. one phone call can change your whole path. And that's exactly what happened for me. And when I heard about this show in California, I just decided to call the theater. It was at the Geffen, and it wasn't even playing anymore. And I honestly have no idea why I called or what my agenda was. <laughs> and I think I left this cryptic message just for the producers, just saying hi, essentially, and feeling like they're never going to call me back. Because when you leave a message at a box office, you know, it like falls into a black hole. Right. And so I kind of moved on to other things I was working on. And a few weeks later, the producer called me. And we had the most lovely conversation. It was I was completely blindsided. And because of my background in PR and marketing and also the mom space and my love of theater, they were very interested in some kind of relationship with me. And unbeknownst to me, the show was coming to New York.
0: Mm, wow. That's amazing, like how all of that came together. Like I think about all the themes in your life. And in that one sentence, you said it, it sort of sounded like it came together right there.
1: Exactly. And then I wound up getting invited on as an associate producer for the New York production. And they'd sent me the script and I had never produced before. I didn't plan on that per se. And I remember when the script came in and I was reading it. And I said to my husband, I said, you know, they invited me on the show and I feel like I need to do it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, you know, do it. And so I just dove in And because it was a smaller show, it was off-Broadway, it also gave me an opportunity to really dig my heels in. And they allowed me to help on the marketing end and to be part of special events around it. So it really gave me not just entree as a producer in the theater world, but also a chance to put all my skills together for the good of a show. And it was really like the perfect synergy.
0: Hmm. that's super interesting and, and, and an amazing way to learn. And let me just ask you, did you have, do you have control of your schedule when this is happening? Or do these shows just kind of come in like a whirlwind and, and you have to keep up with them?
1: You mean when a show is at a theater or when you're looking at projects to get involved with?
0: Well, like, for example, when this um, the Motherhood Out Loud show, uh, I guess it was in in Mother Words originally, and then it changed into Motherhood Out Loud. Um, When it came to New York, like when that happened and you were the associate producer, do you have a lot of schedule control in that while that's all happening? Or is it like crazy?
1: Well, it it depends on the time frame. I mean, this was a little fast and furious because when it was coming to New York, it wasn't like it was coming in a year, you know, mm-hmm. or six months. It was coming fairly quickly, so that was you know definitely time consuming, and they wanted to do some special events around it, like mom theater blogger nights and things like that. So I jumped in head first, really fast, and and then when the show was actually at a theater. I was there like almost every night and you don't have to be necessarily. I mean, as a lead producer, you'd want to be, but I was an associate producer, but I wanted to be there. It was so exciting. And and what was so cool was that my son was young then. He just turned 18 and he saw I was out all the time and he's like, mom, where are you going? And I said, well, I have mm-hmm. a show. And even at his young age, he wanted, he said, can I come see it? And, wow. and it was the coolest thing. And that's one of the things I feel so blessed around all the work that I do, that my son has been raised loving theater as well. And it's something that we share. And it really touches my heart. And he wanted to support me as a mom and be there for this project. And it's it's so amazing when your worlds can meet that way. Right.
0: And then from there, you went on to invest in a couple of Broadway shows, Sylvia and Godspell, pretty big time shows. How does that happen
1: and how does that work? Well, when I was on Motherhood Out Loud, once you're in the industry, people kind of get a sense that, oh, here's some new blood, you know, who might be right for the picking. And, you know, maybe she'd want to get involved with something else. And Sylvia was actually a show that I had heard was coming to Broadway. And I loved it. It had been off Broadway, if you recall, a number of years ago with Sarah Jessica Parker. And it like stuck in my mind. And when I heard it was coming to Broadway with Matthew Broderick and Annalie Ashford, and I happen to love Annalie Ashford, I just decided to reach out to this producer who I happen to know through the producer on Motherhood Out Loud. And I said, you know, I just love the show off Broadway and is there some opportunity to get involved? And so I wound up coming on as an investor for that. And Godspell came because it was another lead producer who I had connected with. You know, the interesting thing with theater is that once you're in the industry, whether as a producer or an investor, but certainly as an investor, because most producers start out that way, you really, if you make an effort to network and mingle and immerse yourself, which I did, you will start to meet people. And that's when things happen. You know, people want to, how how do you get involved in the industry? And it's because you put yourself in there and you've made this decision that you want to get involved and you want to be part of the community. And
0: you know, what you're saying is, is really a fundamental piece uh, in almost any field that this sort of this networking piece and the personal relationships and the personal handoffs. So when you say networking in the theater industry, um, obviously you were deep into it in the associate producer role for Motherhood Out Loud and that. I guess, was kind of the in and you started meeting other people. But right. do you meet them at parties? Do you go to like open it? Like what exact th- this is, of course, all pre-COVID. Let, let's just right. talk right. about that. Um, but like, how do you where do you actually interact with people who, you, you know, like, for example, the, the Sylvia people or the Godspell people, like, where do you
1: meet them? Well, I mean, Facebook is one possibility. There's a lot of theater groups on Facebook. There's a lot of theater people on Facebook. I actually have a a Facebook group with many theater colleagues in there. It's called Lifelong Theater Lovers and Supporters that's a great place to connect, mm-hmm. even even via LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. There's also, there's a lot of industry happenings that you can attend and you can take classes. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's at an NYU or an organization called True or another organization called CTI. You know, there are ways to network through all of that. And I think, you know, once you, like, if someone listening, for example, wanted to get involved with theater, I'd be happy to have that conversation with anyone.
0: Mm, and,
1: and, generous. and, you know, many producers in theater are happy to do that, because, and one of the things that I always say that, as an investor, you know, yeah, it's a crapshoot, and you never know what's going to make money or not make money. But the reality is, if there were not investors, they would quite simply not be theater. Right if you love theater, this is the way to support it. And you don't necessarily have to be rich to be an investor. You know, Yes, you do need to be accredited at a certain level because people in the industry want you to understand the risk that is involved. But what I've said to my investors on shows, and I'm Tony nominated for Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, and all but one of my investors were first time theater investors. Hmm. And and one of the things that I said to them is, you know what, I can't promise what the end result will be of this because no one has a crystal ball. And if any producer ever guarantees you that you're going to get rich from it, you know, run from the hills because you never know. But what I can promise you is that you're going to have an amazing time. And if theater speaks to you, then it's just a, a lovely experience and you're supporting the arts.
0: OK, so this is very interesting. So you're saying most of your investors are first time investors and you don't have to be like a, a super rich person to do this. Can you give us a sense of like w- what is the range that of money that people would invest in a particular show?
1: It varies for a Broadway musical because they're higher capitalization. You know, typically, I mean, usually I would say the lowest amount would probably be twenty five thousand. It's usually twenty five or fifty, but sometimes there is the opportunity to split a. Sh- they call it a share, mm. so there is an opportunity to split a share. So if you had a friend, for example, and if you were able to come in on the show at twenty five thousand, you could split that with someone else and both do twelve five. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more palatable. And depending on the show, you know that would typically get you into opening night. You would be part of the, often the first night opening preview of a show. There's a lot that happens around a show that makes it just so cool and exciting. And honestly, when you invest, at least my experience has been, that it feels like your show. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's excitement around
0: that. Absolutely. Uh, So, okay. So that's the big time Broadway shows. Is there another level for off Broadway or different other kinds of productions?
1: Um, Yeah, there would be. I mean, for example, I'm developing a show right now with my producing partner inspired by my book, how to marry a mensch. And we have in mind Off-Broadway and regional, and we'd love to do London and Israel and all kinds of other places. We're open to Broadway, but we don't know if that will be the path, and not every show has to be. And because it's Off-Broadway, it will be a much lower capitalization. I don't know exactly what. And so I'm not sure what we would ask for from investors yet because we haven't raised money just yet. But I think then, yes, there probably would be the opportunity to come in lower, potentially, for something like that. So Off-Broadway is a great place to start. And actually, the advantage of Off-Broadway is that sometimes it goes to Broadway. Mm. And if you have a desire to get to Broadway, the time to get involved is Off-Broadway. Because once they announce the Broadway transfer, it's too late.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Often. So And also if a show has a trajectory of regional touring or regional production, licensing, which we definitely have in mind for my show Inspired by Mensch, that, um, you know, you don't know where that will take you in a lot of shows. If they don't succeed in New York or it's just too competitive, they can't get a theater or what have you, then just regional touring can bring in a lot of money and even overseas productions as well.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Um, th- this may I don't know if this is the right question to ask or if it's too technical. Are there funds that people can invest in that then in turn invest the, the some, you know, the certain minimums in
1: shows? Um, yes. I do know of a couple like that. They're usually fairly big ticket, you know, when, ah, you, know, when the okay. amount you have to put in, okay. yeah, because they can't, you know, for the smaller investor or the first time investor, that would mm-hmm. not be very viable.
0: Okay. All right. So the, the range, you know, is really more in, is it Broadway? Is it off-Broadway? Is it regional? Uh, and, and it looks like there are a range of ways that you can be an investor if you're going to get yeah. in, uh, involved in, in that on that side of it. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, and then what you're doing right now with How to Marry a Mensch.
1: Yeah, I mean, Natasha Pierre was the most amazing experience. We got the most Tony noms that year, and I became Tony nominated, which was unbelievable. From my first Broadway producing gig, Out the Gate, to be the Tony Awards, was quite surreal. And I just I was in my element completely. And it was unexpected, actually, because I was invited on by a producer who I had met through Sylvia. And I had made the decision after Sylvia that if I was going to invest or get further involved in a show um, to raise money, because a producer needs to raise money, I wanted my name on a playbill. And to get my name on a playbill means that you have to be a producer. So I just went for it. But I had never raised money before. So, And I had a very short window because Comet was a transfer because it came from Off-Broadway and then it was at ART in Massachusetts. And then it was coming very quickly to Broadway. And I had maybe six months at the most, if that, to raise money. And that's not a long time. So I was under a lot of pressure, but I hustled and I did it and a lot of sleepless nights. And yeah. but, but it worked. So, you know, perseverance, networking, belief in the project. You know, for me, it was really being heartfelt because, mm-hmm. you know, as I said earlier, you can't promise what the payback for a show will be. But right if you can promise that someone will have a good time, and you'll do your best to make that happen, and in my case, Josh Groban was the the star, and a number of my investors loved Josh Groban, so I promised them that I would make sure they got a chance to meet Josh, and I stood by that word and made it happen.
0: Mm hmm. Um. So tell us what's happening now, uh, and and what what's happening with How to Marry a Mensch. and uh, and I think you're also working on a couple of other projects too, right?
1: Yes, I'm on two other Broadway musicals that are in early development. One of them is inspired by the TV show The Nanny, and it's being written by Fran Drescher and her writing mm. partner, her ex-husband who did the Nanny TV show with her, mm-hmm. and um, which is hugely exciting. And I think it'll be like the perfect thing for when we when intermission is over from the pandemic, because it's going to be like
0: <laughs> I <laughs> like that intermission.
1: Yeah. yeah. And it's going to be like comfort food on stage, you know, this show. It's just going to be fun and light and fluffy. And I think we're all going to want that coming out of this. Um, And then I'm also on a musical that's being written by Elvis Costello and Sarah Rule. Wow. Wow inspired by the iconic film, A Face in the Crowd, and um, that's, you know, they're both earmarked for Broadway. So those are coming, and then I'm working on my own musical with my producing partner, inspired by How to Marry a Mensch, and with that, we, our vision is really to, we'd like to inspire a Mensch movement. We feel like we need all the mensches in the world that we can get now more than ever, And if we can get people to have a consciousness of how they're showing up in the world and how that translates into the dating realm, then that's the messaging around the show that we hope. And of course, we don't want to be preachy and we just want it to be entertaining as well. And it is a musical. Um, But we do hope that we can inspire a dialogue and to get people to think about are they living authentically and what are they putting out into the world that is actually doing some good.
0: And just for the people who may not know what Mensch means, can you please define
1: it for the audience? Sure. Mensch is a decent, responsible person. Uh, The origins are Yiddish. We're not perceiving this as a Jewish show. It's meant to be contemporary and reflect diversity and have different ages shown. And we you know, really want it to be a, a show of the times because dating has also become complicated, you know, with all the dating apps now and Zoom and all those things happening. Um, yeah, not to mention the pandemic and COVID yeah. dates, whatever those might be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we're not going to get heavy into COVID, but I, I think what's interesting coming out of COVID is that I think people are doing a lot of, you know, self-investigation or exploration as to what's really important at the end of the day and who do they want to be with, what love do they have in their lives and how would they like to see that going forward if things aren't showing up the way they wish they would.
0: And, and when you say, when you're the producer, the producing partner, and you say, and then we're working on it, mm-hmm. what is your day like, what are you actually doing day to day?
1: A lot of things, Carol, (laughs) many balls in the air. Um, Right now we're in early development. So what that means is that we have our composer lyricist and he's Tony nominated. We're so excited. And we are um, talking to different book writers. So that's going to happen very shortly as well. So we're going to have our creative team. We already have our our, uh, director. We already have um, our GM firm, And of course, we have our attorney. So as soon as we get the book writer, which I'm hoping will be this month, potentially, then we'll be poised to have them start to write and ideas will fly and we'll be in the Zoom room and brainstorming is going to go on because my books are nonfiction. So we need to create a narrative. And of course, that will largely be between the book writer and the composer lyricist. But since the source material is mine and my producing partner has lots of ideas, too, we do plan to share, and our director as well, because you never know where a great idea is going to come from. And musicals are so collaborative. So once we have our team, that's going to be the next step that we do. And then they'll go off and write. And they usually have about six months you know, to write a full script. And then we go from there, which includes the music as well. And then we go from there and see what we need to do. You know, does it need more work? And of course it needs more work because music, you know, nothing happens overnight in theater, but we are moving steadily forward. And, you know, the positive thing is that because it's early development for us, we're really not going to be affected by this theater intermission right now.
0: Right. Now, I just had a bunch of questions when you're speaking. What is a GM firm? What
1: does that stand for? Oh, that's general management. That's when you hire a firm that essentially kind of overlooks the business aspect of the show yeah it just keeps like all the paperwork and everything in order and with an eye toward production and you know just all the various steps that it takes to produce something
0: i see like paying people and all that kind of thing or is that even yeah. something separate yeah
1: that's, that's part of it too
0: yeah got it um and when you say book writer that's actually mm-hmm. like the script like that you're saying the narrative
1: for yes, exactly. Book writer as in, that the term is librettist. I see. Yeah. The person who writes the story for a musical.
0: Mm-hmm. And how typical is it for a musical to be developed around a nonfiction book as opposed to fiction?
1: Um, I don't know if it's typical or not t- typical. I, I think inspiration comes from different places and you know, what we have, the directive that we have given is the book is written by me as a love coach, which is the work that I do with singles. I offer private consultations. And so we'd love to see a love coach, you know, on stage reflected in the book. Right. Not me. I've given the mandate. I don't need to see me up there. <laughs> um, it would be fun to see a love coach. But other yeah. th- other than that, you know, we're not wedded to the specific content of it. It's more the messaging around it and the tone that we're going right. for. Um, so, Good. so there's a lot of narrative flexibility.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, can you tell us about the New York Theater Barn? What is that and how are you involved with it?
1: Sure. New York Theater Barn is a nonprofit organization that incubates new musicals and early development. And I came on their board during the pandemic And I just, I love what they do. They are providing a showcasing home for new works now who otherwise wouldn't have one. So they have a new musical series, which is free to attend. It's virtual and it's every other Wednesday and people can sign up to get on their email list on their website. It's newyorktheaterbarn.org. They can also be found on Facebook. And I do a live watch party actually in my theater group on Facebook whenever this happens, which is a lot of fun and great way to connect with people as well. And they also do a choreography lab. They're launching a podcast. They actually did a really cool thing as well. They launched a record label under Broadway Records to produce concept albums during this time, Mm. which is such an amazing platform because this, again, is intended for new musicals and early development. So what they are doing is giving a platform to creative artists at this time, to share the new works that they're developing and i can tell you carol you know one thing about the industry and broadway and off broadway and off off broadway will all come back and when it comes back it's going to be gangbusters because the rooms the zoom rooms that i have been in and the work that i have seen is is breathtaking some of it Mm. So there's going to be a boatload to look forward to. And if anybody loves theater, who's listening to this, I would urge you to tap into New York Theater Barn and just check out their virtual programs because it's an opportunity as well to be in the Zoom room and to be part of, to witness the process of the early development of a show.
0: Right. Well, uh, so much of what you're talking about, it's it's like there's an incubator, there's funding. It's like, it's a startup you know, every time you, you create a new um, musical and a production and an early concept, it, it, you know, the idea that you have an incubator for for theater, it, it feels like it's a, uh, an offshoot, you know, of incubators in general.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. And you're exactly right. Because each show tries to position itself as a business, you know, so mm-hmm. like, I mean, there's commercial theater, and then there's nonprofit theater, but lots of the nonprofits support shows that they hope will ultimately become commercial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the point is is that people what's what's important is to support these incubators, you know, like the New York Theater Barns of the World and the other nonprofits, because no show starts on Broadway. And a lot of theater fans don't know that. And the path is that it has to begin, it has to find a home somewhere to work out the kinks, to try itself out, you know, whether it's regional or overseas or off or off, off Broadway, these places need to survive. And right now it's so vital to support them if uh, you know, to the best of our ability. All right. So I just want to repeat
0: that. Uh, no show starts on Broadway. Right. And those have you're saying they start in regional theater, overseas, off Broadway, off, off Broadway, because they, you're As you just said, you're you're working out the kinks and and you're getting it I guess you're also uh, seeing what the audience appeal is and what you need to change to increase the audience appeal. And then from there, some of the shows will move to Broadway, some probably very small percentage. Yes, that's true. I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, we are winding up to, to the end and I am going to ask you that question about what's your prediction for what the theater world looks like post pandemic. Mm-hmm. You've given us a, a little bit of a preview by almost like this uh, sort of pent up demand that's building um, in the virtual world. And I love how you call this the intermission. So that, that's that's great language and it's great theater language.
1: Um, what do I see for the future? Wow. Um, well, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I, I think, I mean, aside from the productions that I, as I said, are going to be amazing. I think you're going to see, I think the virtual world that we've experienced during this time is not going to completely disappear I, mm-hmm. I think Zoom has become a thing. Um, I'm not saying that's going to, you know, become the thing at all with theater because it won't, because li- nothing replaces live theater. But I think it will be interesting to see if there is some incorporation of that going forward, because theater has always been one of those situations where not everyone can get to it, you know, whether they can't afford it or they're not, they don't have access to it. So, right. you know, so I think it will be that will be something to keep an eye on and see if that winds up becoming a part of it. And then you have so many platforms now where the creative work is coming from different places. You know, during mm-hmm. the pandemic, there's been some really cool stuff emerging from TikTok, you know, for right. example. So I think that people in the industry are going to be scouting talent and keeping an eye out in ways that they really hadn't before. And yeah. that's, that's been emerging during this time as well
0: like the democratization of of, um, like trying out for, what what are they, of
1: auditioning? Yeah, well that too, you know, for for talents Mm -hmm. who are, are writing, you know, actors and actresses who are auditioning, yeah. I mean, all of that is, and there's other platforms that are launching to create virtual work or ways that people can connect with each other and even post like videos of themselves singing or you know sharing some kind of talent that they have so they can be found and all of this is being developed right now and some of it already exists and of course you have the streaming platforms like you know broadway hd and broadway on demand who are are both doing a, a great job and there's a lot of interesting content and broadway podcast network launched and they have some amazing theater podcast shows. So I don't think any of this is going anywhere. I think the industry is just going to be amped up in a different way. I do think you're going to see more diversity Mm -hmm. on theater productions as well. And I do think that, you know, initially, I mean, this will be interesting to see what shows come back first, because it will be a little easier initially to do a show that's not a musical, or at least that's a smaller musical, Because part of the challenge around the theaters is the small dressing rooms, is the tight orchestra pit, is the tight backstage area.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I think some of the productions that are a little smaller in stature and with Mensch, um, our musical, for example, you know, we have an eye toward no more than six actors,
0: Mm. um,
1: which was always our mandate. And the other thing is we're aiming for like 90, 100 minutes, no intermission. Hmm. And, I, and I think you're potentially going to see some shows, if, if they can, you know, when viable, taking a look at that format, because it's going to be preferable not to have people hanging out during an intermission in the lobby or the common spaces of a theater right. that won't be ideal for a while until things get, you know, really fully safe.
0: Right. Wow. That's, that's a lot of innovation. Uh, yeah. and, and I know it, it came out of necessity, but uh, interesting about what you think might stick and and what might not, and and how um, the the format of theater productions might might evolve, at least some of them, as a result. Uh, so, Robin, I want to end with the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today.
1: One of the things that I learned so much, especially during my investor raise as a producer for a great comet, because it was new to me is that no is often just no for now. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, in that case, it related to, cause I had some investors who initially said, Oh, I, you know, I don't know the timings not right for me. I love it. I'm interested. Can you circle back? And I did. And it wasn't right one month, but then three months later, they were on board. And in that case, that was for investing. But I have learned just in general, for anything that you want to do, quite frankly, Carol, you know, if you're just not getting the answer that you want, then maybe you're just not meant to do it right now. But it doesn't mean it's not meant to happen. Well,
0: that is an excellent place to end. And no, um, only means no for now applies to so many aspects of relaunching. Uh, and I also just want to say this has been a fascinating look at how to get into the theater world at age 40. So, so you're setting an example for people who think that you have to be in it from a young age. And here you're showing that you actually don't. There, there's a, there are ways you can get in in your 40s that, you know, and you're fully, you're, you're fully entrenched now.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's it's never too late. I mean, I don't think it's too late for a lot of things in life, but it's certainly never too late for theater. And I know people who've gotten into it even later than I have. And what's lovely about theater is that it's so communal and it really has the power to change your life because you'll be in the room with people supporting projects you'll enjoy, but also making new friends. And it has enriched my life in so many ways, and I'm so grateful for it. And, and to know that you're part of the arts and putting out theater into the world, that can change lives. Mm-hmm. I, too, I truly believe that there's power in the messaging of theater. And to be part of that is beyond gratifying.
0: Hmm, Wonderful.
1: Robin, how can people find out more about your work? I have two websites, lovecoach.com and motherhoodlater, L-A-T-E-R.com. I don't have a dedicated theater website, but I'm happy to hear from anyone via those. And I can also be found on Facebook and LinkedIn um, and Twitter and Instagram, but I'm mostly active on Facebook and Mm -hmm. LinkedIn. Great, that's very
0: generous of you. Robin, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It was my absolute pleasure. I hope that your listeners enjoyed and, and I hope you did as well. And thank you for the platform to share.
0: Oh yes, I, I enjoyed it so much. I know our audience will. Thanks for listening to 321 Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host.